If you have a Bible, let's open it up to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we are in the final chapter of this great letter uh, to the Hebrew Christians. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 here this morning. Again, Pastor Rich is going to be preaching, so I'm going to read the Word. So would you please stand as I read it? And we'll show reverence to God's Word, and then He's going to come up and pray and let it rip. So, This is Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is God's word for God's people. pray together. Our Father, we draw confidently before Your throne this morning because You have opened the way for us. Through the blood of Christ and His sacrifice of His life in our place, that once an eternal sacrifice has been made that cleanses us from all of our sins, that invites us into Your presence, into a renewed and reconciled relationship with You, our Creator, because of that standing before you, you have also invited us into your kingdom to be your people, to live um, in your ways, and to find joy and satisfaction in you alone. So I do pray now that as we, as we come to your word, that you would guide us, that you would uh, cultivate in us a, a, a tender heart towards your spirit and the work that he wants to do in us to grow us and to change us and to shape us into more like Jesus. I do want to pray this morning, though, for... Just your church around the world, Father. You have declared that you will build your church and even the gates of hell hell will not prevail against it. So we are confident that as your gospel continues to go forth that it will accomplish its purposes. It will renew and change and transform hearts and lives and bring about the growth and spread of your people, your bride throughout this world. So I pray that you would continue to do that through the many different avenues and those who, who we're in relationship with, for those in the Czech Republic who are laboring hard in a, in a dark place, uh, with many who, who doubt and, and disbelieve, I pray that you would awaken hearts to their, their work and their labors and that you would just cultivate uh, a, a, a just renewed and uh, expansive spread of the gospel throughout that country. Pray for, for us here and the relationships that we have within this network of Crossway churches that you would just continue to uh, unite us together around a common vision to see more churches planted both here in the front range and, and really around the, around the globe. I just pray that you would uh, protect and preserve those churches, that you would uh, continue to raise up men and women to lead faithfully, uh, to be able to ha even have a heart to go out and, and, and to take a step of faith to, to see a new work started. Pray for those who are struggling even now. We, we pray specifically for High Plains Harvest Church and just the unique uh, challenges that they are walking through right now. I pray that you would show yourself faithful to them, bring healing where possible, and restoration where it can be found, and uh, just uh, sustain them and provide for them through this time. 
So uh, we, we trust in you this morning, God. We trust that you are still in control, that you still rule and you still reign. And so we look to you, our King. We want to submit to your ways. And we want to honor you in our lives. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. As I get started here this morning, I want, I want to just invite you to reflect just for a moment on the first time that you visited a different culture. Maybe it was the first time in your life that you actually stepped out and, and traveled outside of the country. For me, uh, growing up over in western Colorado, we didn't travel at all. Hardly, hardly at all. I don't think I, I left the state until I was probably 14 or 15 years old. Didn't leave the country until I, until I was in college. But I, I remember distinctly the first time that I got to go down to Ecuador uh, with my wife. We were, we were dating back in college and we went down to Ecuador where her family lived and to, to, to visit and to, to connect with them and get to know her family. And I just remember the, the moment, from the moment we landed in Ecuador in this new place, that just instantly struck me, we are not in Colorado anymore. It was vastly different in almost every way possible. And it, it was shocking in so many ways. One of the first things that just was frankly terrifying was just driving down there. There were kind of some rules of the road. I think it's gotten better um, in recent days, but uh, her, her dad was driving us around, you know, back to where her, her family lived in the mountains and just driving over these these roads that, that weren't wide enough for the, the vehicles that were on them and, and just coming up and you basically had to had to just drive aggressively or you were going to end up off the road. And so uh, he'd, he'd be screaming right up on a truck coming right in front of him. And at the last minute, he'd, he'd swerve around another vehicle and go. And I, I, at that time, you know, I, I thought I like to drive fast and all, but uh, it was a whole different level of driving and, and, and all there. It was, it was, it was amazing. And then just, just seeing the way that the, the, the houses and the buildings were constructed, everything just built out of concrete, uh, uh, solid walls around every building, and at the top of those walls was embedded shards of glass and broken bottles, not as decoration, but as, of course, you know, uh, home security and, and all. And so it was just, just a very different world. And then uh, I also got to experience my first time there, uh, New Year's celebration down in Ecuador, which is a whole nother whole nother area. If we think that we, we, we think that we know how to party on, on New Year's, say, check out Ecuador. They do this thing where they, they, they burn the old men, kind of the old men of the, of the past year. They, they, they light them on fire. So they build these, these, these uh, paper statues and, and these wooden structures. And then at midnight, all across town, anywhere and everywhere, they just light them on fire. And so the whole city is just, just burning. It's, it's a pretty incredible thing to see. It's, it's amazing. But uh, uh, it was very different. It was, it was foreign. It was confusing as to, as to how things operated down there. I had never been in, in, in that place. And we all realize this, that, that, that every culture, every nation has certain ways of life that are unique to them. There are certain values and ideals that, that characterize each of these places. And the reality is the same that it is true for us who are in Christ. When we enter into Christ's kingdom through faith in Jesus, we are called into a new way of living. We are given a new set of values, a renewed purpose a new view on the world, and thus we are called into a new way of living. And there are many times in which what we are called to embrace as those who are citizens of a different kingdom, the way that we live and the things that we hold, our values and our ethics may look very foreign to our surrounding world. But if you remember, at the end of chapter 12 that we finished up last week, we were called to, to remember and be grateful for the fact that we have received an unshakable kingdom. 
Through the new covenant that's been offered to us in Jesus, we have been brought into the kingdom of Jesus. And it's this kingdom that doesn't change, it doesn't shift, and it will last forever. And we're called to live as the citizens of this place. And as we saw previously in this book, when we come to faith in Jesus, God describes what He will do, that He will, he will write on our hearts His very law. And so the things that we're called to do and to be, this new way of life that characterizes the kingdom of God is not merely just a, a list of things that Christians do, but it really is, the, is a lifestyle that is cultivated by a heart that's been changed by the gospel. These things are born out of a transformed and a new heart. If you remember the many warnings of this book that have been set forth before us, telling us that if you think that you can claim faith in Jesus and say that you follow Him, but that makes no difference in how you live, then at the best, you just don't understand your salvation. And at worst, it may indicate that you don't actually have saving faith. The thing He's setting forth to us is that God saves us for a purpose. It's not just us pulling us out of hell, but it's actually seeking to create heaven within us. And those who are saved by Jesus will also be changed by Him. There is a fruit of our justification that, that shows the authenticity of the position that we've been brought into. And like much of, a, much of the books of the New Testament, we see here that our practice as followers of Jesus is rooted first and foremost in our position with Jesus. But the reality is that we were justified, declared righteous so that we could be made holy. And a changed and renewed heart will lead to a transformed and changed life. And so in light of all of these beautiful truths that have been laid out for us throughout this whole book as we've been looking at, at, at this over the last number of months, the question is, how then should we live? And chapter 13 here contains a number of what, upon first reading, might feel like just standalone exhortations. This, this, this chapter reads very differently than the rest of the book with its tight argument and it's, it's detailed explanation of Old Testament images. And here it's very different. Some have, have t come to believe that this was a, a later edition. But I think what's going on here is actually this is much more like a long-winded preacher who right at the end, when, when you all think that, that he's about to land the plane and get to his conclusion, he says, now to wrap things up, I have 12 application points for you. Right? But we don't have any preachers around here like that, right? Not when, um, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, but the things that he's, that he's, that he's appealing to the reader here are things that are born out of everything else that he's, that he's set forth. Of who we are in Christ, the kingdom that we brought into should look differently. It should, it should shape us into a different kind of people. So I want to look at these powerful and needed reminders for us as we seek to live as those who belong to another kingdom. And as, as, as I studied through this text uh, this week, I just continually was trying to ask, like, why these things? 
Why, why in, in these first six verses, why does he start with these things? There's so many things he could, he could call them to, so why these? And I, I tried to wrestle through that, and I honestly don't know if I have a great answer to that. Other than this, that, that the things that he begins by addressing seem to be those common areas that seem to trip us up most often. And if we're to generalize it, the categories that, that he brings up here, first and foremost, are the areas of relationships, sex, and money. And the believers in the first century needed encouragement in these areas. And we continue to need these things today. So, if you're one of those who likes to, to know where we're going and kind of have a roadmap for us so that you can know kind of when you can expect to, to get out to lunch, here's our, our three points here. First, in verses 1 to 3, we will look at the call to pursue selfless relationships with others. Then in verse 4, we, we see this call to embrace God's good design for sexual relationships. And then lastly, in verses 5 and 6, we'll see the call to seek a healthy relationship with money. So in verses 1 to 3, we're first called to pursue selfless relationships with others. And this first area contains a trio of, of, of types of people that he sets forth that we're called to consider. And the first group is what I'm calling the insiders. The first exhortation is to let brotherly love continue. You might know this is actually a Greek word you all are, are somewhat familiar with. The, the, the word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. That's why we have this city of brotherly love, which I used to live in northeastern Pennsylvania. I did a lot of construction work down in Philadelphia. The most mislabeled city that there is. <laughs> Trust me. But, but brotherly love here refers to a love towards those who are inside the Christian community. Those who are viewed as family. And the command here is to ensure that the love and the care that they have shown towards each other, that they have lived out from, from the time that they first believed in Jesus, would continue to grow and to flourish. That it would not wane, but it would continue on. And this book is hinted at this tension that, that the writer feels where he describes those who, who maybe are neglecting the Christian gatherings, those who are in danger of drifting away on their own and walking away from the community. And so here at the close of this message, he calls Christians to give renewed attention to the care, the support, and the encouragement of one another in their faith. We could all say, oh, that seems like a good command, right? That's something we, we can do. We're all into that. You know, brotherly love, that's a pretty simple and straightforward, you know, call for us. We're all about that, right? We're all about loving each other. Yes and amen. Okay, we can, we can move on to the next. Until it's that one person that you just really don't like. That, that person in your life group who just drives you crazy. Who won't stop talking. Who, who just says strange things out of place who always is kind of maybe focused on themselves. Maybe then it's okay to, to gossip and criticize those people. Maybe when you get offended by that person that, you're, that you've been in, in close relationship with, then you can, can talk badly about them. You can, you can develop bitterness against them in that relationship. Now, brotherly love sounds great until we actually bring ourselves into the mix of it. Because it becomes tough. It becomes messy. But the reality is that we belong to each other. 
We are called to fight, to display an otherworldly kind of selfless love as we learn to grow alongside of one another. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, the world is going to know and see and understand that you are my followers by what? It's not by their detailed doctrinal statements or their amazing, you know, worship gatherings. It's by their love for one another, for each other, the way they treat each other, the way they care for one another, the way they bear each other's burdens. That is going to be the display of those who follow Jesus to a watching world. And all too often, the world sees in the church division, disunity, fighting, splitting, and struggle. And there are things that, that we need to stand on. There are things that we need to fight for. But do we equally fight for the unity of the church? For restored relationships with our brothers and sisters? To let brotherly love that's been cultivated first and foremost by our brother who has loved us when we were unlovely. That we have been loved much so we can extend love to others. So the insiders are the first group. The next group is the outsiders. The second command says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And the word that's often translated as hospitality here is actually just the opposite of the word for brotherly love. Where that word is Philadelphia, this word is philoxenia, which means love to strangers. So he's saying, continue loving each other, but don't forget at the same time to love those who are outside of your community. Those who were not members of, of the family or close friends. For the original writer, the, he could be referring to someone who was traveling from a long distance, one who was seeking lodging and, and, and care. Some commentators even believe that, that he's referring specifically to even traveling Christians or missionaries who, who need, you know, uh, a place to stay as they're traveling through a town. But whoever it is, it's a pretty broad statement to those who are, who are outside of your community, your close relationships. The reality is that the people of God were never meant to be an inward-oriented people. But they were always intended to be a place of refuge, a place of care for the stranger and the wanderer. A place where the lost and the searching could be drawn towards God. And as God has welcomed us into His family, we then should be characterized as the most welcoming people. The writer gives a, a unique reason why that's true. He says it's because some have been unaware that the ones that they were caring for were angels. Kind of random, right? And, and this is most certainly a reference back to Genesis 18 and 19. And in that, that, that passage, Abraham encounters these three figures. These uh, messengers who were, who were sent by God. And it's revealed that even amidst them is the very angel of God, kind of God's presence and the appearance of an angel. And so why does he share this, this little detail as, as, as an example for us? It's a, it's a simple reminder to us and an illustration that you never know who you're speaking with, who you're caring for, and how God might have led them intentionally to you to be cared for. And we should treat everyone that we encounter as those who are of important status, who have value, to not just overlook them because they're too difficult, they're too messy, but just as, as if the possibility exists that, that they're angels and messengers sent from God. Who are the, who are the, the ones randomly that, that you look over 
who maybe God has brought into your life for you to care for. In our very community, in our gatherings, when we, when we come together into this building on a Sunday or into your life groups, are you one who, who seeks to extend a generous welcome to those who don't know the community, who are visiting, who are, who are there, who have been invited? Do we have eyes who are open to actually see them, to seek to engage them, to make them feel like they belong, to give them a vision for what it looks like to be a part of this family? Or do we, or do we too easily hide behind our introvertedness? We're just not very good at talking with people. I just, I just need to, you know, I, I can't handle, you know, too much interaction. Surely God has made us all unique and with different personalities, but He's called us all together to be a welcoming people who seeks to engage and connect with those who are seeking God. He calls us to consider the outsiders. And the last group is what I'm calling the forgotten. This third and last group. He specifically refers here to those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. And in the context, I believe that he's, he's speaking of and reminding these Christians to care for those, those within their Christian community who have been imprisoned for their faith or who are suffering persecution in other ways. You remember chapter 10, verse 34, he, he describes and he says, remember your former life when you first came to faith, how you at that time had compassion on those in prison. This has been a pattern of, of their life and he's calling them to not neglect that, not to give that up. And how are they to think of these forgotten ones? He says, think of them as though you yourself is in, are in prison. You're supposed to put yourselves in other people's shoes to think of the care and support that they need as they are locked up for their faith. And we, in our current setting, cannot take it lightly that there are today Christians who are actively suffering for their faith, who are in prisons, who are facing true persecution, and we can easily forget that because of the amazing freedoms that we do possess. There's a call and a reminder to pray for the persecuted church. To be aware of what, of, of what others are going through. To remember them. He also says that we're called to care for those who are mistreated. And the reason that he gives is because you also are in the body. We're called again to remember our connected identity. That when we were saved, we were not saved just merely on our own, but we were saved and brought into a people to be part of the body of Christ. And so, that's why he uses the language of family. That we have a responsibility towards each other. Let us remember the marginalized, the wounded, and the forgotten ones both inside and outside of our community. So when there's someone who is suffering, who is hurting, who is going through trial, who is battling chronic sickness, who is walking through grief, do we easily forget them? Because we're so focused on ourselves and we all have our own problems, right? And all too often, it's the ones that provide the greatest care for others are the ones who have felt the suffering themselves, who have walked through that season, who see the need, who, who know it. And can we all take a moment to just open our eyes and look for those? For those who are hurting, who are battling depression, for the, for the elderly in our midst who maybe are tucked away in the nursing home. 
Do we have eyes to see them? To find ways to care for them? What we're called to here is a radical kind of selfless love. And in order to do this, uh, it's, it's been observed by one writer that what we need to find is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And with that, he, he says this, that, that to be selfless is not to think less of ourselves in some kind of self-deprecating way, but rather it's to think of ourselves less. Our problem so often is that we're so focused on just ourselves that we, we don't have eyes to see those around us. But we're called to look as Christ did on others, on the needs of others, to consider their interests more significant than our own, and to see how we can extend love to the insiders, to the outsiders, and the forgotten. This is the first calling of one who has been changed and transformed by the gospel to pursue selfless relationships with all of these types of people. Our passage then, as you'll notice in verse 4, takes a pretty abrupt shift and brings up a topic that really hasn't been spoken of throughout the entire book. But here in, in verse 4, we're called with our second point here, we're called to embrace the good design for sexual relationships. Now let's be honest, here in 20, 2022, the demands of this text and really the, the whole of the Bible on its view on sexual ethics is completely out of step with our cultural moment. And the reality is that, that, that we need the church to not shift or cave or compromise on God's design for marriage and healthy sexual relationships. And this text is a needed reminder for us. It reminds us of God's intended design for us in this area. And if we will embrace it, if we will seek to preserve it, then God will lead us into flourishing relationships that the world longs to know. And so he tells us in this declarative statement, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. The bed here specifically refers to sexual intimacy within marriage. Let's just be very clear. Marriage, which is the covenantal union of one man and one woman for life is a beautiful institution created by God and should be held in high regard. Regardless of our culture's uh, declining and low view of marriage, with those who say, oh, don't rush into it too fastly, just wait and kind of live your life as much as you want, you can always get married later. Maybe we don't even need it. Statistics are showing that very soon we're going to arrive to the point in our, in our country where the number of unmarried people between marriageable, marriageable ages is actually more for the unmarried than it is for the married for the first time in our nation's history. So who needs marriage anyway? It's all about ourselves and what we can do with our bodies and with our lives. Marriage will just kind of hold us down. But we're reminded as God's people to see marriage as this thing that He has created and it is good. And connected with this is also the reality that God has designed us as sexual beings and He's given us the gift of marriage as the context in which to experience the gift of sex. So why does He include this, this statement on, on, on sexual intimacy in here? Well, the reality is because at the time there, there were competing views and perspectives on the, the, the role of sex in the Christian's life. 
And there were some who, who were kind of maybe adopting kind of a, an ascetic view of, of sex. That to really be holy and spiritual would actually be greater pursued through a celibate life. And maybe, maybe we, we, we should, we should, you know, reject all of those things and, and, and pursue a life of celibacy. That maybe that's a more holy path. Then on the other side, there were those who, who adopted somewhat of a Greek dualism of, 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 of the, the, the physical and the spiritual kind of being separated. And, and since, since sexual, you know, relationships just kind of is contained to the physical realm, then it doesn't really matter. What really matters for, is just the spiritual side of things. So what you do with your body doesn't really matter. And I don't think we're all that different today. I think that, I think we develop different views of sex depending on our upbringing, our history, our experience, the families we came from. But I think it's been rightly observed that, that just like those in this time, I think that, that we often can, can have a tendency to, to view sex in one of two categories. Sometimes we begin to see sex either as gross or as God. And, and, and by gross, we mean that, that it's, it's something that we can't really talk about. It's kind of, you know, taboo. You know, it, it's great for creating babies, but don't have too much fun with it. And I think even in the church for, for a lot of years, in, in an effort to try to guard young people and, and call them to, to purity, it almost the message became that sex is kind of dirty and it's, it's kind of gross, so stay away from it and, and just save it for the one that you really love. And that's, that's kind of been a mixed message that I think we've, we've, we've heard over the years in, in one way, that sex is kind of gross. Or on the other end, we begin to see sex as God. That it's everything. If you want ultimate satisfaction and, and experience of, of your humanity, it's going to be found through sex. And this is really where our culture is at the moment, right? And, and there's some, some great books by a guy named Carl Truman where, where he's unpacking kind of the historical foundations behind this and that have led us to this point. And then the, the, the love of, of, of individual self-expression and how that's been brought up within this, the moment of our sexual revolution has resulted in this place where we see in our culture that our sexual identity and how we are as sexual beings as the very foundation of what it means to be human and who you are. And so sex is no longer something that you do, but it's connected with your very identity and who you see yourself as. And so sometimes we can see it as gross or as God, but God does not declare it as either one of those things, but He does say that it is good. That God designed our bodies to experience sexual fulfillment. It was His idea. It is a good gift for us to enjoy, but only as we embrace it within the context for which it was designed to be experienced. Many of you know that I used to work in the uh, restoration industry, dealing with uh, flood damage and fire damage. And I'll never forget this one house down in Loveland. Uh, the, these folks had a, a fairly small uh, house with a small yard, and uh, it was the middle of summer, real hot. I don't think they had air conditioning, so they wanted to put a swimming pool in their backyard. So they got one of those little you know, stand-up pools you know, that has kind of the, the firm edges with the, the ring around the top. And uh, they set that up in their backyard. They set it up about, you know, probably within eight feet of their, the side of their house, in their backyard. And I'm sure for a number of weeks they enjoyed that swimming pool. The water that, that was contained in that pool was, was refreshing. It was cooling in the heat of the day. And they enjoyed that water in the swimming pool for weeks. Until one night, in the, in the middle of the night, 
They heard a loud crash. And the seam facing their house on that swimming pool ripped open. And all of that water dumped directly down into their basement through their window, breaking the glass and pouring thousands of gallons of water down into their basement, leaving an incredible mess. And it's kind of a picture of, 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 of sexual experience that, that, that when it's contained in the place that God has, has designed for it to be experienced, it is good. It is glorious. It is beautiful. It's refreshing. It's life-giving. But when we open it up out of that and dump it down into the basement of our lives, it creates a huge mess. Brokenness, difficulty begins to stink. And so here, those who follow Jesus, those who are brought into His kingdom, are called to embrace God's design for sex. To be experienced in the context of marriage, this good and glorious relationship that God has given us to experience. And against this statement of what, of the goodness of sex comes this contrast to us. Where he says this, he says, but, Remember that the sexually immoral and the adulterous will be judged by God. That's some, some strong language to describe what will happen to those who are, who, who are living lives sexually immoral and in adultery. And the word here for sexually immoral is one that really is just kind of a, 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 a grab bag term that really encompasses all kind of forms of, of, of sexual expression outside of marriage. And so why does he give this intense warning here and, and really zero in on God's judgment against sexual sin? Is it that it's a worse sin? I don't think so. I don't think he's saying that this is a, a worse form of sin. We're all condemned uh, because of the sin that, that, that characterizes all of our lives, no matter which kind it is. But he he's, he's, he's highlights the nature of this sin in this way to, to, for us to just grasp the seriousness of it, the implications of it, and in many ways, this is ultimately a distortion of God's good design. It's that image that God uses even to depict His relationship with His people. And He wants us to take it seriously to recognize and feel the, the, the gravity of this. That to just give ourselves away in whatever way um, with, with no conscience to the, the consequences of our sin in this area, then we may be coming dangerously close to those who, who say they believe in Jesus but they live completely contrary. So as we think about a verse like this, I want to just offer some pastoral words to different ones that might be in this room. First of all, to those who are maybe in a state of singleness, to the singles in here. Maybe you hear this and you recognize that this is an area that you're struggling in. And maybe you, have, you feel like God has forgotten you. That He hasn't provided you with a spouse up to this point. And maybe you question His goodness because of it. And maybe you hear this and you say, well, that's great. I'm glad that marriage is so good for everybody else that has it. So good to hear that, that sex is awesome in, in marriage when you can experience it. But what about me? What about the place that I'm in? I guess I just have to battle my passions and my desires on my own. And maybe you're tempted to start believe what the world is selling you. That maybe there's a better way out there. Is this really that big of a deal? Maybe I can just explore a little bit in this area. 
I can, I can view porn occasionally. I can let this dating relationship go past some boundaries. I'm not hurting anyone. Everyone I work with is, is active in this area and they seem to be doing just fine. You know, may, maybe this is just an antiquated view on sex. Maybe the church has missed it on this one. You know, why, why does God even care who I sleep around with? If those are the, the whispers that you hear, that you're, that you're battling with, hear the call of this passage. Hold on to God's good design for marriage and for your sexuality. Remember that God sees you, that He, he knows the place that you find yourself in. And the same promise that we're about to read in the next verse applies to you in your current condition where He says that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Will you trust Him? Will you fight to see this season not as a prison of waiting, but as a field of opportunity? Will you remember the words that that Paul wrote in Romans 7, describing all different states and conditions that people find themselves in, even, even highlighting his own condition of singleness and the opportunity that it granted him and others to serve God fully to serve His church and to, 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 to do unique and awesome and radical things for Him. Will you wait on God? Don't give up on marriage. It is a good thing. It is a good gift. But will you wait for God's time and His purpose and His place to bring that into your life? For those in here who maybe see themselves as sexually broken, Maybe you hear the warning of this passage and you fear because you know your past or even your current ongoing patterns of sexual struggle. Maybe you feel immense shame and guilt over the things you've done and you don't know how to handle the weight of it. To you, I I call you to remember the rest of this book and the entire message of this book. To remember the sacrifice of Christ that has been offered once for all. For the words that God declares back in chapter 10, where He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's an invitation to come to Jesus. If you you don't know whether you can come to Him and be accepted because of your sexual past, hear this, that the message of the Gospel is free and open to everyone. Come to Him cast it on Him. Let Him heal you. Let Him bring forgiveness and cleansing in your life. There is forgiveness found in Jesus. He doesn't keep pointing out your sexual failures, but He sees you as one who is clothed in the perfect holiness of His Son. But the reality is that the forgiveness He invites us to receive is not granted so that we can go and live however we choose. But He saves us, unites us to Himself so that we can be changed and pursue His glorious ways for our joy. The reality is that we all bring our brokenness to the table. And regardless of the depths of the depravity that you think that you have lived out, God invites all of us to unload that burden of guilt and that shame at the cross and together to press on towards holiness alongside of one another. 
And in that context, we can be honest about those failures, about those struggles, and we can grow and care and support one another as we seek to fight and pursue what God has called us to. And lastly, for the married ones in here, maybe you sit there and you say, I want to believe that marriage is honorable, that it's a good thing, but that doesn't sound like my marriage. And the marriage bed, I don't even think I know what that is anymore. If that's where you find yourself, hold firmly and fight to believe the truth of this passage that God's design for marriage is good. And yet, the reality is, in a Genesis 3 world, in a place where sinners say, I do, it will be difficult, there will be challenges, and sometimes it will feel impossible. And that is why we need each other. If that's where you're at, seek help. Reach out to those around you. Seek support in your life group. Seek a good, healthy biblical counselor to help you, you, you grow and learn and heal through the struggles that maybe have plagued your marriage for years. Continue to protect the sanctity and the intimacy of your bedroom and don't pursue lesser things. Fight to experience the beautiful image and the picture that God desires for your marriage to be. Well, I bet you all were expecting a much lighter message on this Mother's Day. But this is where the text led us. After speaking to these areas of relationships and sex, he turns to his last point that we're called here in verse 5 and 6 to seek a healthy relationship with money. He tells us, keep your life free from the love of money. In the original language, the, 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 this is not given as a direct command, but rather it is a statement that kind of implies a command for us, implies us, us, us an action. But he basically tells them this, and he, and he makes this statement. He's, he's telling them that the manner of your life should be characterized by this, that you are not one whose goal in life is to get rich, that you are not one who desires wealth you are not greedy for money. That material things are not what you long for. Not what you seek satisfaction from. But rather, your life is one that is marked by contentment with what you have and with, with what God has graciously given you. And if you belong to a different kingdom, then why would you seek to accumulate the currency of this one? And if your goal in life is to attain to a certain degree of wealth or a certain standard of living, the reality is you'll never reach it. Ecclesiastes remind us, reminds us that whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. So rather than seeking wealth and money, our life should be those that are characterized and grounded in a profound sense of contentment. And here, here's the reason that He gives us. It's this. It's because of what God has told us. It's because the promises of God that He originally gave, gave to His people in the Old Testament still stand for us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what you have or what you don't have, you have God. 
And in whatever economic circumstances you find yourself, God wants above all things for you to know His unwavering presence in your life. And maybe He is keeping you from getting what you actually want in the realm of finances. That house or that car or whatever else that you are longing for. Maybe He's actually not letting you have that so that you know His presence alongside of you. And there may be churches out there who preach that God's greatest desire is to make you rich. I think they skipped over this passage. Because God's greatest desire is not to make you happy in your wealth, but He wants you to be satisfied in Him. So do you believe that? Are you in a place where regardless of what's in the checking account, that you can declare, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do to me. And one of the best ways that we can learn to not love money is to actually practice incredible generosity. But the thing is, if you see money as something that you need to protect you, as if it's your fence of protection, if that's, if that's how you see money, then you need to keep it there. But if you see God as your protection, as your provider, then all your resources are things that you can freely give to care for others. The thing that this passage doesn't do is try to give a picture of, of the degree of wealth that a Christian should have. As if Christians should all be at a certain standard of living. He's not, he's not making that point at all. Whether you have millions or whether you're just scraping by, that's not the point. The point is that Christians have been called to have a heart of con contentment regardless of the amount of wealth that they do have. You see, contentment is never about having the right amount, but it's about being confident in something else. And in a culture where money is abundant, in relation to the world, we are all incredibly wealthy. In a place where, where, where athletes get millions upon millions, where wealth is flaunted in absurd ways, does your heart begin to ache for more? To long for what they have? To see what your neighbor has been given? And do you battle with the idea that if you just had a little more money, certainly your life would be better? Or... Are we those who are living as those who don't belong to this world? Who have a different currency? And so we are content and gladfully so with whatever season and state of life that we've been brought into. We would do well to remember the words that Jesus spoke in His Sermon on the Mount where He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's find our treasure first. Let's set our eyes on the only treasure that will last. And then let's let our hearts run after that. Well, as you realize by now, this wasn't a classic kind of Mother's Day sermon or text. But I hope that you can see that, that the call of this text is actually maybe what our families need most in these days. 
Any kids in here? You want to honor your mom today? You want to see the, the greatest desire of her heart fulfilled? Then, then turn to Jesus. Love Him with everything that you have. Serve Him faithfully. And give your life to Him. Men in here, if you want to honor your wives, flowers are great. Certainly, take them to lunch. Hope you made a reservation. Celebrate her today. Lavish her with gifts. But if you want to honor her, then honor her by upholding God's design for your marriage. Strive so that it will be a glimpse of the kind of love that Christ shows to His bride. And you do that as you love and you lead in strength and self-sacrificial care. If you want to honor her, then fight to preserve and guard the, the integrity and the purity of your bedroom. Be done with the wandering eyes and the lustful heart. Get off the internet. Smash the phone if you need to. Set your eyes on her alone and follow and run after her heart and her body alone in your relationship. And mothers in here, and other women as well, amidst all the feelings that you may feel of your inadequacy, that you don't measure up, that you constantly need to do more, remember this, that the greatest thing that you can give to your family, the greatest way that you can serve them, is to give them a glimpse into the kingdom of God. So show them what love truly is as you love the insiders and those closest to you in your family and your friendships. As you open your home and show hospitality to strangers, willing to sacrifice regularly to care for those who don't have a place of their own. Show your children what a Christ-centered marriage is as you respect and honor that relationship first. And seek to display a home that's marked not by money, not by the perfect decorations that are on your walls, but give them a home that's marked by contentment and complete confidence in God. And when the world, see, world sees that kind of kingdom, it may appear incredibly foreign. Something that they have never seen before, but it will be a glorious picture. Let's pray. We invite God to help us as we pursue these things together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for these reminders, for these things that, that for many of us may hit heavy on us because we realize we, we see in our life just, just brokenness and struggle and, and, and patterns of areas that we fall short. That's why we need You we need the constant renewal of Your Spirit in our lives for You to, to see, help us see these things in us. To see that, that the world does not offer a better way, but You have, have set before us a, a path to joy, a way of being in the world that will lead to flourishing in all areas of our lives. Help us to believe that. Help us to, to live our lives grounded in Your Word, in Your wisdom, and in what You have called us to be. Let us live as the citizens of Your kingdom in the way that we relate to others, in our marriages, in our sexual lives, and then as we, as we wrestle 
in our own lives with our relationship with money. Let us seek you first and your kingdom most of all. We thank you. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus alone. Amen.